I'm surprised how many technical difficulties we run into, um, especially for people who are so familiar with all of the equipment. Um, hey, it's Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Jonathan. Welcome back for another Hang in the Laboratory to talk about science, philosophy, arts, all that fun kind of stuff. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Glad you're here. Thanks for coming. We're really excited to welcome our guest, Jonathan Sampson, who is the head of developer relations at Brave Software, where they're working on the Brave browser and the basic attention token, which we honestly think are two of the coolest projects we've run into so far since we started paying attention to the, the blockchain space, the crypto space. Ooh, welcome to the dojo, Jonathan. But before we talk to him, thanks as always to our backers on Patreon who throw us as little as a buck an episode to help keep this thing going. Uh, if you throw us uh, just the buck or more, you'll get an invite for our Slack workspace where you can come hang out and kind of watch us make these things, talk to us about the topics before they pop up, all of that. Thanks also to Jonathan for coming by to talk about Brave. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so do you, you want to kind of just give us a rundown on how you ended up there? You'll probably tell it better than I would. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, but have, I guess have an inside perspective. Um, so, you know, I, I got my computer like everyone else, uh, uh, years ago, probably late nineties. That's when quite a few people at my age, uh, started getting into computers. Um, you know, loved it, you know, started getting, uh, you know, building websites and stuff just on professionally for friends. You know, that uh, path led me to, to Microsoft where I was working on browsers themselves. Uh, and then, you know, during my time at Microsoft, uh, Brave was launched. And, of, of course, it it made sense because throughout all this history, you know, the advertising space had gotten really crazy, uh, quite dangerous. Uh, malware was spreading pretty uh, rapidly. And uh, so I, I saw this interesting opportunity to, to jump laterally over and work from one browser to another and uh, joined the Brave team in 2016 from the Edge team at Microsoft, and uh, it's it's been a blast. It has been an incredibly educational uh, experience, you know, filled with tremendous growth personally and professionally. And so it's uh, it's been quite wonderful. I have I feel like I have so many questions I want to ask just about the Microsoft experience, but <laughs> but that's not really what we're here for. Um, I think I think the place to start is sort of like to back up a whole history of of browsers and all that kind of stuff. But first, uh, for the people that haven't listened to the episodes where we've talked about Brave and stuff before, you want to just give us like the quick sort of rundown on Brave and how you guys are doing stuff differently. Yeah. There's, so, all, there's all kinds of cool stuff on so many different layers <laughs> going on with that thing. <laughs> I know. I'm looking at this like, okay, where do I start? Um, yeah. Brave is a web browser, uh, which is it's very similar to other web browsers. We've all been using them. You know, at the very beginning, there was Mosaic from the uh, NCSA and stuff. Mosaic then was, you know, licensed uh, and turned into um, Internet Explorer early on. Uh, it also led to Netscape Navigator. So we probably used those as well in the 90s. Um, Netscape Navigator, then eventually through some, you know, uh, uh, quite a bit of a story, uh, turned into Firefox. Uh, and then, you know, Firefox and stuff continued to grow. And then 2008, uh, you know, Chrome uh, was released. And so Brave is very much like these uh, predecessors uh, in that it is meant to function as a user agent for the individual that's behind the keyboard. You know, it's meant to access the web, do so quickly and efficiently uh, and, you know, serve the user. One thing that distinguishes Brave, though, from these other ones is that Brave goes above and beyond uh, the Call of Duty when you start to consider things about security, online advertising, um, tracking that has happened uh, you know, these days on the web. We could talk about, you know, the rise of tracking and how that came about. Um, but Brave goes a step further than all the other browsers in that it has uh, in-situ ad blocking and tracker blocking, in addition to, you know, anti-fingerprinting mechanisms, uh, malware and phishing blocking, all this stuff is built in. This is typically the stuff that you'll see, uh, you know, super users and tech nerds like myself, when we would go to mom or dad's house for Thanksgiving, we'd install an ad blocker, install some type of tracking, you know, protection, uh, you know, software. We might 
change their DNS settings or something to try and protect them. Well, Brave comes with all of that built in by default and turned on by default uh, with some additional extra you know, steps that you could take if you wanted to, if you, you know, are familiar with the risks involved. And so that is basically what it is. It's a super browser that uh, is oriented to protect the user first and foremost from any and all threats that they might encounter online. So Brian and I, if Brian will back me up on this one, have tried multiple times to record an episode about just the idea of advertising. <laughs> uh, we talked about this a little bit. <laughs> like literally six or seven times we've tried to do this and it's ended with us shouting at one another <laughs> because we can't, because I, like, I work, at, I, I have worked for years in marketing. And so there's that part of me that, that understands why it's like, oh, advertising, right? Like we mute commercials, we fast forward through things. Mm -hmm. Like TiVo was designed entirely to get, so we didn't have to deal with ads. It certainly was the selling point, right? I mean, the idea of time shifting video is nice, but right. people really like it because they can fast forward through the ads. <laughs> I have a really inflammatory comment I like to make that, that sometimes people just tell me I'm an idiot and then the conversation's over, but other times it gets into a good conversation. I like to say that all marketing and advertising should be illegal as like a jumping off point. I, I can see how that security. could be very polarizing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And on one a, hand, I get it. On the other hand, then I feel like, but occasionally I learn about like a, a concert that I'm happy I learned about because someone is, you know, actively trying to put that ad in front of me. Well, that, that's, right. I think that's the distinction there is, you know, we, we don't like, you know, I went to uh, Las Vegas years ago and I was trying to walk from one side, like from one block to the other. But literally there are people forcing things into your hands as you walked, you know, just this, this one block span. And I didn't like that too much because these people were aggressively trying to push content onto me. But at the same time, you know, a, a you know, buddy of mine and you know, where I grew up would say, hey, uh, you know, so-and-so is going to have a concert an hour away from here. And I like that because this friend of mine who has a close intimate history with me, knows my interests, knows what we've done in the past together, what kind of music we listen to when we hang out on the weekends. He has taken that knowledge, that rich reservoir knowledge that he has about me. And he's, he's realized that, Hey, Jonathan would like to know about this. I'm pretty certain. So I'm going to tell him and, you know, he'll wind up buying a ticket for this concert. And it's like, those are, they're in the same space, but they're just coming at it from very different ways. Obviously, you know, my friend is positioned quite a bit more favorably because he has inside knowledge about me, my likes, my interests, and he knows what information to present with me rather than hit me with a fire hose of options and saying, hey, you know, Lady Gaga is playing, uh, Charlie Daniels is playing, you know, who do you want to go see? He, he knows just <laughs> specifically which options to present to me. And, and that's, I think, probably a distinction in there that, that is uh, pretty notable. Yeah, it's interesting how much our perception of uh, the other party's intention and then our kind of our trust with the with the other party, uh, and I say other party because kind of referencing uh, systems or companies or whatever that are advertising online versus your friend. I think that's a really neat example because um, no one's upset when their friend is like, "Hey, man, I bought this cool thing. You should yeah. go buy it too." Or or your example with a concert. Um, but when you're online, there's this skepticism, and you don't there's there's a mistrust because you don't know what's going on, and especially to these days as ads get more and more targeted, and when people feel like, man, are they is someone listening to my microphone on my my phone, which we know is happening sometimes. Uh, it, it your your own perception of your own world and control of your own world, I think, starts to starts to really mess with you. So, in a totally random aside, I looked this up once. You know the. The, the guys you're talking about that stand on the side in Vegas with yeah. the like cards that are usually yeah. for escorts. They're, they're, the reason they never say anything, they just flick the cards and then kind of throw them at you is because there's some like loophole in the prostitution laws there where you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to like run a TV commercial or bark on the corner about a, an available escort. But if you just hand someone a card, it's okay. So they're not allowed to, shout at you because they're actually that wow. would make them pimps but if they just hand you a card that's fine give them it was them away it was a completely unexpected experience i mean this was this was not yeah. at like 10 at night or nine at night or eight at night this was like at 6 30 or something like you're, you're on your way to dinner and <laughs> yeah the only time is on the way to breakfast is the only time you don't yeah. encounter that <laughs> 
Um, I feel like that brings us to just organically to the conversation of tracking, which is what Brian always brings up when, when we end up mm-hmm. arguing about this stuff. It just, the idea that people are just now, I think, starting to become aware of the amount of tracking that's happening on, on, on the internet. Like partially just, it's a blunt things, right? Like they notice the retargeting that the Amazon ads show you frequently after you've already purchased the product and you're like, wait, come on, I bought it. Like, what more do you want from me? <laughs> Buy it again. Yeah. <laughs> right. But then there's weird stuff like the crypto jacking that's, you know, and like st- you know, headlines are starting to pop up that are making people realize how much of this stuff is. Yeah. Is I mean, some of that crypto on. jacking worked when its you way think, into YouTube yeah, ads not too long ago. Yeah. So, so do you want to kind of talk about the, like the sort of the history of how we got from a website is just a thing like it's sitting on a server and I go look at it to this thing is doing so much yeah, stuff those... like client side. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's weird. Look at, uh, the internet today is such a radically different place than it was, you know, back in my day. Uh, <laughs> now this is just, we're talking 20 years. It's not even a, a great span of time, but back in the nineties, uh, the internet was largely stateless. Uh, you, you would type in a website address and the webpage would appear and you would click something and the whole screen would change and you'd go to a different page. Um, you know, even if you wanted to post a comment, you know, today we have small comment boxes. You, you type your comment, hit enter, and it just appears on the page. You don't have to wait for things to refresh. Well, the, you know, the, the internet was stateless and, and without scripting in the past too. So a lot of the stuff that happens dynamically on the page is happening because of something called JavaScript, uh, in the, the page itself. And so you go all the way back to the early nineties and one of these students at the university of, uh, you know, Champaign-Urbana, um, I think he had already graduated by that point. He was, you know, had another job elsewhere, but Brendan Ike went and joined Netscape and he was there to, you know, build a, a lightweight scripting language inside the browser. And so he did famously in 10 days in May, he had this short, you know, schedule. He had a, a small allotment of time to both create this language and then do a demo to show them that this is something feasible that can work in the browser moving forward. And he successfully pulled it off. And of course the internet has, never been the same as a result. And so the web browser became not just this stateless, silly little thing, you know, where pages were static, you could start to do things. Um, meanwhile, to address the statelessness, uh, which was, you know, you would make a request to, you know, I'm thinking net, well, netscape.com. And, you know, netscape.com would respond with the bits for that page. It would render the page on your, your screen. And then if you clicked a link, uh, for netscape.com forward slash downloads.html or something. Well, a new request would be made, but that request would not have any knowledge about the previous request for netscape.com. And so there was this uh, no persistence of data over sessions that users would be uh, entangled with uh, with a server. And so they created what's called a, a cookie. And this is a household thing now. Everyone knows what cookies are. We just know that you have to clean, you know, clear them sometimes. And so cookies are these small bits of information that are sent with every request to certain domains. And so if I go to Netscape.com, Netscape can create a cookie. It's a small piece of persisting data on my machine. And then the next time I request anything from Netscape.com, that cookie is going to go with it to tell it about previous interactions I had. And so this was great because now these servers could persist some data to make more meaningful sessions for us users. Well, then you know, around the same time, you know, early 90s, the image uh, tag was created. Websites were largely just text in color. And then, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the image tag was created and put into the browser so you could render images as well. And you could render images from not just the, the website you were visiting. If you were on Netscape.com, the image didn't have to be hosted on Netscape.com. The image could be hosted on Yahoo.com or Excite or Dogpile or something like that. And you would be able to have these images from other domains. But that meant if I went to Netscape and an image was loaded from Yahoo, well, when that request was made to Yahoo uh, for that image, a cookie would also be sent to Yahoo from my interaction on Netscape.com. So out of all of this became born this ability for third parties to track my traffic around the web. Now, this required you know requests made for these images and stuff like that. But then, you know, XHR, the 
you know, XML HTTP request object was introduced uh, in the 90s as well. And this was a way for websites to make asynchronous requests to endpoints out on the web and stuff. And then, uh, you know, things just continued to compound and get more and more complicated. And it was all a big, beautiful accident. But birthed out of this was, you know, the modern advertising industry and now how they can, you know, whenever the web page loads, they can check your screen size, pixel density, color depth, all that kind of stuff, and then send off requests for ads, load ads and stuff like that. And it's all asynchronous and happens immediately on the page and stuff. And and so it's it's beautiful, but it got out of hand. It was all kind of accidentally created. And uh, and now today we have this issue where pretty much any website you go, there's going to be some type of tracking that's happening. You know, we have CDNs, Content Delivery Networks, uh, which is a third-party reliable domain that can host certain resources for the web page, whether they're scripts or styles. And that creates a much faster loading time for users because chances are they've already been to a website where that file was loaded and cached on their machine. But as a result, now this third party has knowledge of where they're going on the web. And Google has their own CDN. Microsoft has a CDN. So resources can be loaded from these. There's also third party people that aren't offering CDN services, but they still manage to get you know scripts loaded into your pages. And so it's it's gotten really, really chaotic and really messy. And you can see some websites will have as many as like 70 trackers loaded into them. And uh, it's, it is an unbelievable uh, evolution of the system. And, you know, here we arrive at 2015 when Brave was founded to hopefully forever change and improve and reform this industry. The single worst offender that I run into day to day is the Hollywood Reporter, which I'm happy to call out by name. <laughs> They're running 50 or 60 trackers per like it's so jammed up if you load it in a browser that doesn't have an ad tracker running that I just it's I don't even I've stopped even clicking on their links. Even in Brave, I just it's, don't. Um, like, it no, makes you guys why don't. this happens. You know, obviously, there's a, there's a direct <laughs> correlation to the amount of knowledge you have about an individual and the efficacy with which you can push products on them. And so, if you know a lot about somebody, you have a better chance of having a successful sale go through. And so, obviously, if I have a friend of mine talking to me, when you enumerate all of the things my friend encourages me to do there's going to be a higher percentage of those where I do it versus all the things random strangers on the street encourage me to do. And so if they can get more knowledge about you, which is why we start to see, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 trackers put on these pages, that's, you know, the more they can co-opt that knowledge to to sell and, and make a profit off of you. And the, the frustrating thing is, you know, they're, they're coming, they're trying to get well, to the same endpoint, but via two very different paths. They want to have a very deep and intimate knowledge about you, but they want to do that without having, you know, the, the closeness and the connectivity and the invitation uh, from you, the explicit, you know, uh, indicator that I want you to have this knowledge about me, like I have with friends in my personal life. Well, and one of the funny notes that I had before the episode was I, I, I constantly have a moral struggle as someone that does marketing and controls web properties specifically like Brian and I did a whole episode of where we uh we talked about the we were it was a context of us launching a new website but we kind of talked through the thought process of like the optimization that we felt needed to happen before we could do this whole thing and a lot of that was a discussion of the production optimization but then also like a lot of that was getting google analytics installed and like there's a subset of what feels like best practice tracking things that I do for every website I'm running. And I'm always a little like, uh, they don't know that this is happening. The people that like that you can just see a yeah. ping from, Oh, there's somebody from Michigan on the site right now. Huh? There's, there's an interesting space where this goes because, um, if you try to think through kind of what the end game of advertising is, if it were, uh, if it could be anything, if it were perfect, if it were extended out in the future, we have the capabilities of doing this is I, I sometimes think that the the end game is, well, I don't need to think about stuff I need anymore. Or I don't need to think about things I want anymore, right? They kind of just maybe I even just my credit cards directly hooked up to my web browser or whatever my digital device. And you the system knows so much about me that when I need toilet paper, it's just at the door. When I'm hungry for a cheeseburger, it's warm and ready to go in my like food replication device. And so it's it's a weird, it's a it's funny to think that digital advertising, which now feels like this 
it's this middle it's something that exists in between me as a consumer and and the businesses that are producing things but it's really like it's in this it's it almost feels like it's in its infancy. It's a thing that is eventually it's a middleman. It's going to go away. Uh, and what are we going to be left with? And how does it go away? And then from that, from that perspective, when you start talking about uh, the way that your information is going out publicly right now, users don't know what's going on, right? Like, I mean, I work in digital advertising and I still struggle to wrap my head around everything that happens for an ad to get delivered to somebody. And so the uh, the complexity there of what's being tracked and what's being shared and what's actually happening when you load a web page is, is wild. But when you start to look at it from the... I, I like the example we've been pulling here where we kind of talk about a friend referring you to purchase something uh, or to go to an event. And they're doing the same thing. Like philosophically, your friend is also like watching you and judging you and liking you and disliking you and remembering things you did and making mental notes, even if they're not conscious of it. It's this interesting philosophical space where we're, it feels weird because it's the internet and we don't, we're not used to it. It's a digital device, but we all do that in reality. So there's this shift, I think, coming. um, uh, And it, it's fun. It's a particularly fun talking to you about Brave, right? Because you're you're working on some technologies, um, specifically a cryptocurrency backing to your browser. But it's we're we're inventing something here. Something new is emerging from the technology that that is what already exists. It's just we're in the uh, what is it? What's the the term for uh, uh, digitally oh, generated yeah. faces that you like recognize aren't Uncanny real? Valley. Yeah, we're in this like uncanny valley of of computers trying to be your buddy, uh, but we're not ready for it yet, and it doesn't feel right. Yeah, I think that the major distinction between you know what we do with our friends and, and what we do online is, you know, there's this explicit contract between me and my friends. And you know, I have a buddy of mine named Keith who's visiting right now from Illinois, and I invited Keith to come down. You know, I invited him and his wife mm-hmm. and. You know, in seventh grade, whenever I sat behind him, I invited him to uh, you know draw a picture for me because I realized he was an awesome artist. And and so this this was a relationship that I willingly entered into and I willingly form and and, and nurture moving forward. Unlike when I, I go to a website and I just want to you know look up uh, something online real quick and you immediately have seven new friendships you know with these advertisers out in the world. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I, I look at just the quality and, and the output from those. You know, when I first moved back to Florida, my wife and I asked a friend of ours, uh, you know, are there any good Mexican restaurants in the area that we live? Because it, it had been 11 years since we've been here. And he said, yeah, there's, you'll like one on, you know, such and such road. Go check that one out. So we did. We loved it. Sure enough. And then, uh, you know, we also, um, you know, later on, someone told us about another one that was very popular but it was in a very small shack behind the vacuum cleaner at a gas station. And there's mm-hmm. just no way we would have ever thought to go there. Uh, had something, you know, someone didn't recommend this to us. And so I look at that and it's like, man, I, if I were to go online and type Mexican restaurant, you know, Panhandle, Florida, I'm going to basically get whoever's willing to pay the most. And that's going to be disproportionately right. skewed to the larger, more wealthy uh, you know, establishments. But when I asked a friend of mine, you know, they either encouraged me to go to one, which wasn't very large, uh, or another friend who says, you need to try this one. It's practically invisible. It's behind the vacuum cleaner at this gas station in literally a shed. Like you would imagine a shed for, you know, your lawnmower or something. It's literally in a shed uh, with a window on the side. There's no way they would beat out the, the larger advertisers. Uh, there's no way that, uh, you know, Google search or something like that would encourage me to go there. Um, but friends who know me and and know my family, they would know that. And that's because we willingly manage this relationship with them. And uh, it's, it's interesting to see the stark difference between the quality of output uh, as well. Well, I think that's why we've ended up in that uncanny valley space, because like what you just described is, you know, you have these friends locally and you have a relationship with them. And that relationship is, you know, what Brian was just talking about, like the 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 back and forth trade of, of you know, interactions that give you context about that person, you yeah. know, as a friend. And then you go ask them for, you know, help with this thing you're trying to, you know, this this problem you're trying to solve, essentially, like you want to find the restaurant. And, you know, the progression of the web you get 
search engines. So we made a place where you can just fire the question off, but what comes back, you know, is questionable. And then this, through this progression, got it, you know, increasingly better. And then with the social layer, now you have this thing where the signals are starting to include those social pieces where they can start to try to mimic and leverage that sort of dynamic with the friend that you have. Because in a real world context, someone just shouting at you, hey, you should check out this Mexican restaurant versus a friend saying, oh, yeah, you would like this place. Like you've already described the difference there. and But it just starts to get weird when when an ad pops up and the user of the website or, you know, whatever it is goes, Oh, that was weird. I don't know if I like that. Like, and that's that time where uh, just we're, we're at a time where I think that your average person is going to start to ask questions like, what should I do? Like, how can I take action to make this weird feeling go away? <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? like, oh, I don't, I don't like that Amazon seems to know what's up. I wouldn't mind saying, hey, Amazon, I need a jacket. And they go, cool, here you go. Yeah, yeah I mean, when you when you put those two stories side by side, I mean, you know, one, you have a, a friendship with someone, you know, intimate friendship and stuff. And then two, you, you look at like the way celebrities are treated out when they go in public and, and the paparazzi that's around them, that's observing every little detail about them, that is taking photos of everything they do, that's looking at what they eat and stuff, and then publishing about it, sharing that information more broadly and distributing it. And, and making lots of money off of it. I mean, that's exactly what's happening on the web. Anytime you go to, to pretty much any website is you are that celebrity who is trying to escape the, the claws of the paparazzi as they, they meticulously study every little detail they have access to about you for profit. And, uh, and so that has a lot of people upset. They, they start to realize, you know, this invisible world out there, just what's happening, and, and they don't like it. They, they're not super excited about it because they don't have control over that relationship. They don't have control over the degree to which someone can study them. And so that's, you know, in Brave, what we're looking at is first and foremost, you know, we're trying to to cut off that because it's not just the annoyance of people watching you. It's gotten far worse. You look at, um, you know, Forbes magazine uh, not too long ago, uh, they we're telling people, please don't use ad blockers that that impacts our revenue stream. So someone turned off their ad blocker and almost immediately was hit with malware through their ad network. Um, you know, of the $80 billion that was spent in ads, digital advertising last year, 16 billion of that went to ad fraud. And so it's it's crazy just how much uh, fraud and malware and, and stuff that happens in these. And of course, you know, Chrome users, they will oftentimes see websites open up that tell them to insert, you know, install a particular Chrome extension. And this is happening by way of ads. And some of these ads or extensions that people are installing are themselves pushing more ads on them or doing something like session replay uh, scripting where they they watch your your mouse or your keyboard. They copy data. They do all this type of stuff and they send it back to their servers um, for you know, malicious purposes or for advertising purposes. And so it's gotten such uh, so dangerous out there that people are installing ad blockers. And to this point today, it's like 600 million devices are running ad blockers. And so Brave realized that well, you can't just you, you can't solve this problem by just cutting off ads like ads. People realize that, you know, that, that they need ads to monetize their content. That's the way in which the web works. That's the way in which, you know, media has worked for, for a long time. And then we went from printed paper ads to online ads. It, it moved with the metaphor, you know. And uh, so you can't just block everything off. And, and that's just a race to the bottom where no one gets any revenue. No one has any fun on the internet. No one gets the content they want. Everything moves behind paywalls. And so Brave has realized that what we need to do is come up with a better deal, a new model, something that can sustain the web while also respecting the privacy of the end users so they don't feel like Paris Hilton when they go out. And uh, I, I, I don't know, I feel like Paris Hilton when I go out. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we're looking at something has to be done here. And so the first step was to just cut off ads and trackers entirely. We, we still respect first party ones. So if you go to, you know, is engineering, uh, you know, the website, then you guys can have some first party uh, tracking if you need to. For instance, if you want to see, well, what web browsers are people using to access our website? That has a, a, a very key utility for you guys. If you're going to be working on your website, you want to make sure it's compatible. Or, you know, where are people visiting from which countries? If you need to offer your content in a different language and stuff, you can first party do that, but no one else can do that 
whenever I come to your website. You know, my my activity to your website is an explicit invitation for you and I to have a conversation. We don't want third parties jumping in on that. So Brave will block the ads and trackers and stuff for the third parties. You know, we can start to to look at the attention of the end user. And the attention is really, I think, the the key point here. It's it's a commodity. It's something I have that other people want. And if I'm giving something of me, something of my own, my effort, my time, my attention, it really makes sense that I should get paid for that. And so that's what Brave is looking at in the long term is that the ad industry can be reformed. It can leverage client side machine learning. So you're, you're already interacting with your web browser. Your web browser is that friend of yours, that friend that you've been with for years. I mean, we, we live and breathe in our web browsers with, you know, how we interface with the internet. And so it's that explicit contract you've, you've formed as that friendship and your web browser learns about you and it does so in a reliable, secure and trustworthy way. I know that, you know, my friend who I've staying with us in our house, he's not going to go out and broadcast to everybody on the street, um, you know, what kind of comforter my, my wife purchased for our bed. He's not going to tell them what kind of television <laughs> we have in the game room or something. You know, he's, he's, he's just not going to do that kind of stuff. But he is going to make great recommendations for me if I ask him, you know, what should we eat tonight? He's going to know what we ate last night. He's going to know what he and I have eaten over the past 20 years. And so, you know, that's what Brave is looking at is, is you can have this better, more reliable friendship, this relationship with your user agent, your browser. And your browser can be that arbiter between the world and you that makes decisions for you, more meaningful decisions. And that's good for the user because they're not getting bombarded with irrelevant stuff. It's good for the user too, because Brave is looking at paying the user 70% of the revenue for those ads. And this is an entirely opt-in relationship too. That's that's one of the core uh, kind of tenets behind Brave is the user is king. The user gets to make these decisions, but it's good for the advertiser too, because they're not wasting advertising money on trying to sell lotion to me or something or, or you know, scented socks or some weird thing. <laughs> right, right. Like, well, one of the things you were saying before is you said uh, no one gets the content they want, right? Like it's, it's not this idea that well, advertisers right. are evil, but we want them to talk to us. Like it just, I want to be in control of the signal that goes out that they use to, to craft that stuff all the way up to with my knowledge of like, uh, cryptography and things like blockchain, I know they could also anonymize that. They could still feed me information mm -hmm. relevant to me without even knowing who I am. And the fact that that's not really happening is the part where like, I do want the content that I want. And I also want a stream of new things to discover to come in. But it's about trying to find a paradigm that isn't about them that, running 60 scripts to that see what I've been yeah. up to by checking all of these <laughs> All these cookies you right. uh you touched on a couple interesting pieces of this whole puzzle i think jonathan in the last couple of things you said and uh it's it's in that space where we start to look at kind of the economics of how information is influencing our lives these days uh and specifically the the idea that uh, our time as human beings, our attention, the, the, the time I invest in something is, is really the currency of life. It's, it's, it's not my dollar bills. It's not the, it's not the thing I do at my job. I'm, I'm getting paid for my time, right? You're paid to be at your job for eight hours. Um, when I, when I go on a website and I'm spend an hour reading a really interesting article, like I've invested the most valuable thing I have philosophically, at least is my time, my time alive. Um, and when we start to look at what's going on with uh, how we engage with digital devices and how advertising works, there's the idea of scarcity with resources. And in economic theory, uh, generally speaking, uh, from a layman's perspective, the thing that's worth money is the thing that is scarce. And on the internet, the the content isn't scarce anymore. The things I can go buy are not scarce anymore. It's it's my attention and my time invested to find them and then to go purchase them. Um, and so the thing that's really fascinating for me about uh, what Brave is doing, it's we've kind of talked through the 
technology that's solving some of the problems, some of some of the obvious problems for the users, the, the privacy and security and uh, keep your computer running well and don't let people spy on you, don't let them run things maliciously. But the really interesting shift here is, uh, in my mind, is the idea of how can we monetize uh, how does the user get to monetize what they're really investing? I'm investing my time to be on your website or to listen to your podcast or to watch your YouTube channel. Um, and we've never been in a position where that is feasible to think about. We've throughout history, we have paid for cable, we've paid for newspapers, we've paid for entertainment because there weren't technologies that would allow us to do anything differently. And all of a sudden, there's there's some stuff happening there are these technologies, there's there's the web and there's the ability to track these things and and there's blockchain and cryptocurrencies and microtransactions and all of a sudden the whole our whole concept of what uh, the economics of entertainment and media look like can can maybe be totally flipped on their head. Um, so I'm I'm really curious to dive in a little more into uh, what you guys are doing at Brave with uh with basic attention token which is a cryptocurrency layered in and i know i think you were using bitcoin previously and and i'm curious if if that concept was even i assume conceptually the idea here uh has been brewing inside brave before you even tied cryptocurrencies in because i think the the dream of the internet right was that uh people could pay pennies to visit websites and all of a sudden there's this free market and money could flow freely but uh it's it, because that's so difficult to do and because the tech has been so hard to develop, um, we're, we're back to a situation now where things are siloed in these big companies and they're controlling things and they're spying on people and they're providing a lot of value too, but we're, we're, we're back in the same old situation. Yeah. You know, my um, wife is, uh, she's born in Brazil and raised in Brazil. And the very first, I think one of the first phrases she ever learned in English was time is money. And it was because there's a, there's a show that plays in Brazil. It's it's you know, created and produced in, in Mexico, but plays in Brazil. And it had an American uh, caricature on there who dressed like Uncle Sam. And he would always walk around and go, time is money. And uh, and that's one of the first things she realized, uh, you know, or learned in, in the English language growing up. And and that's what, you know, as you were just pointing out, that that's still very true today. You know, your time is money. Uh, your attention is worth something. It's, it's not a limitless commodity. We don't we, you know, as Scott Hanselman of Microsoft says, we only have so many keystrokes in our life. And, uh, and so, you know, it, the same is true with, with attention. <laughs> we only have so much to give. And generally speaking, I mean, if it's a very valuable thing, everyone wants it, you know, online, everyone wants it. And so, you know, we, we look at that and, and it's like, you know, the, the new deal advertising would work better if, if the user were getting paid. And so that's going to be one of the key elements moving forward. The user private, browser private opt-in ad trials that are going to happen here in the first part of 2018, uh, the user is going to get 70% of that revenue. And we just think that that makes sense. If you're going to be seeing ads, if you're going to be opting into seeing ads, you should get paid for that. Um, you know, we, we did have, you look at the whole cryptocurrency involvement of that, you know, earlier on, Brenda and I talked about a, a brave coin. Uh, it, it didn't quite work out, um, conceptually at the time. And so he delayed that, you know, waited, we, whenever we launched brave payments inside brave, which the browser itself is one of those second phases towards this ultimate vision. The second phase was to, you know, monitor locally, you know, securely, privately, your attention distribution across the web. And so if you go into the Brave browser, you go into settings, you go to payments and settings, you can turn on Brave payments. And that opts you into this, you know, attention ledger, which lets you know which websites you go, which YouTube channels you visit, how long you spend on them, uh, what percentage of your overall attention is allocated to these creators and these resources. And so that's happening inside Brave for any user who's turned on Brave payments. And uh, this, of course, is a neat system, but you can go one step further and you can say, hey, I, I'm blocking ads and trackers. I understand that in spite of the tracking and the, the bad stuff, these do yield revenue for the creators themselves. So users have the option today to offset those, that you know, financial loss um, out of their own pocket. So I do that. You know, thousands of users do that. We, uh, I, well over 40,000 token holders. Um, and many, many thousands of wallets created. And so these are users who've said, you know, I'm going to take $5 a month or $10 a month, and I'm going to you know, put it into a uh, you know, basic attention token, which is what Brave Payments runs on today. It, it used to run on 
uh, Bitcoin, but Bitcoin transactions got unbelievably expensive. And that didn't work out well. You'd want to fund $5, but you'd spend $3 or something just to buy the five. And it, it wasn't really um, effective. And so, you know, we moved to the ERC-20 token. ERC-20. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, this is what the, the basic attention token is built off of the ERC-20 standard. And so that is now what funds and, and what moves the Brave payment system. So now as I go and I watch videos on YouTube and I willingly give my attention to creators on YouTube and to website authors and stuff. I can see how much attention I'm giving and I can, you know, reward them with donations that are proportional to the amount of time I spend in their content. So if I spend 10% of my time watching, you know, primitive technology on YouTube, that YouTube channel, I can have 10% of my monthly allocation of bat go towards that YouTube channel. And the, the great thing is, you know, this is all done anonymously, securely and, and privately. Um, Brave has no idea. Brave software, you know, we're facilitating this connection. We have no idea. The company has no idea. Yeah. Yes. We, we have no idea who you're giving money to. We just know, okay. And we do that through this hmm. uh, protocol called the Anonize protocol, which has been, you know, there's a white paper online. Fantastic. It's a way for aggregated anonymous uh, mm -hmm. voting uh, to take place. There was one element in there where data could be traced backwards to people and that would be through their IP addresses. And we figured we're not going to do that either. We're going to set up a VPN and have all the votes come anonymously through a VPN. So even geographically, we can't work backwards to figure out who's supporting who. And that just builds off of that foundation of thinking, well, the mm -hmm. user ought to be protected. They should not have information and data leaked out uh, like this unintentionally without their explicit uh, permission to do so. And so today, that's in Brave. You can support people, um, you know, who verify and claim ownership over their YouTube channels or their websites uh, effortlessly and easily on a monthly basis uh, with these micro donations. And so I, I think it's working really well, both as an engineer on the team and as a user of the system. You know, this is the Bosley uh, hair club type of thing. I'm not only an engineer, but I, I, I'm a user of this. <laughs> right. I may need the hair stuff again in a couple of years too, but we'll see. There's an interesting... Uh, there's an interesting legal layer in that where uh, there's a thing called the third party doctrine. If anybody wants to Google it and dig into it further, but it's basically it's, it's how a lot of the questionable government metadata tracking is allowed to happen. Um, there's a like, basically because of constitutional protections, uh, citizens of the United States can't be, you know, tracked or surveilled in certain ways without violating uh, constitutional rights, basically. But once you have willfully handed your information over to a third party, like a like like Verizon, then the government is free to subpoena Verizon and make them hand that over, or whatever shady way that they do it now, and have and have them hand over that data. Same applies to Google. Same applies to all these big companies. So not only does this tracking information go out, but it also then gets into this shady spot where people might still feel like it's protected because it's usually a thing that you you feel like is a, a right that you have to have that be protected. Actually, as soon as it goes out the door in this context, it's it's now fair game to mm -hmm. be just scooped up by like Prism or whatever and stored in a data center in Utah. <laughs> which sounds like I got super doom oh, it, and gloom all of a sudden. Right. <laughs> but it's just a really weird space where not even just the weird feelings we talked about and all that stuff. Like there really is this, this component to the whole thing where if that stuff isn't controlled by me and then sort of anonymized before it goes out the door, the only option right now would be to shut off my cell phone, shut off the internet, shut off all these things, make sure none of this tracking has happened to the best of my ability. But otherwise like that stuff isn't just, Hey, it's out there and these advertisers are using it. Like I generally consider anything that I've ever put into a website like public. So <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very sober realization too. I mean, ideally everybody would be um, you know, very keen to to how this stuff is leveraged. I mean, we, we saw again with the Snowden revelations, there was the argument, well, it's just metadata and metadata is not very useful. And it's, you know, we, we start to realize that that's not the case. I mean, metadata can be very, very useful. Um, and so the goal with Brave, though, is not to to encourage everyone to become very keen to, to what's happening in the security space and info, you know, infosec communities. 
we want to efface all of that. I mean, even the blockchain, we integrate uh, the blockchain uh, into Brave itself for the payments component, but we want to efface it. We want to erase that from the end user. We don't want the end user to have to feel as though they need to learn all of this stuff because it's, it is, it's very exhausting if you're trying to cover all of this. I mean, just the blockchain itself. I mean, if you sit down and you want to start learning about cryptography and how these keys work and how the individual, you know, what distincts, uh, or distinguishes you know, the Ethereum blockchain from the Bitcoin blockchain and, you know, what is Monero? Why do we have 2000 of these things? You know, what is the ERC-20 standard? That's a lot of work for someone to really look into. And uh, you see this with the people who are trying to invest in cryptocurrencies and stuff, how they, it's just, it is, it's tough. It's, it's taken a toll on them. And then you include all of that with the, uh, the security stuff, the general security and info security stuff. It's just too much work. And if you require your users to be privy to all that, you're really not going to have a very appealing or inviting winsome product. And so in Brave, that's why we, we do all the security <laughs> stuff uh, that you, know, you and I would do for family and, and parents and stuff like that on you know, every Thanksgiving. We do all that stuff by default. So the browser is as safe as it can be. Uh, you know, there's some interesting trade-offs. We're as safe as we can reasonably be uh, right out of the box. And we want the blockchain to be you provide all the benefits without requiring the user to have to laboriously and tediously learn how to interact with it. And so that's kind of the, the philosophy that's driving the development of the browser is to erase all of that, you know, make this look as simple as we can so that the users don't have to think about those types of things. I do. Uh, I really love the feature of the Brave browser where um, it shows you where you go and what websites you visit and the time you spend there and, and your attention and how your attention is spread on the internet. It's uh, it's that's that particular feature is not even necessarily like the innovative part of what you guys are building. I mean, the privacy concerns and the the new way to uh, the new economy of the web that could could be birthed from this. It's it's not required for that, but it's so fascinating um, because that's that's one of those spaces where perceptually, as a person. If you don't measure that, you have no concept. You you probably would almost always guess wrong as to like where you spend time and which websites you visit. But to really see a chart of that, um, especially someone, I mean, I'm at my computer all day for work. Um, so I'm invariably browsing through websites while I'm waiting on computers to process things. And and so to see weeks and months of data like that is it's so fascinating. It's such an interesting dive into uh, my own behaviors and my, my own interests. Yeah, the other uh, feature that's related to that you know, just as interesting as what content was served to us is what content was not served to us. Absolutely. And, and the uh, the new tab page in Brave by default will show you how many trackers, ads, uh, and HTTPS upgrades uh, you were given. I love that. And it translates that into that a, yeah, it translates it into a, a estimated time saved. So I I look at my instance of Brave right now and. I'm, you know, as a developer, I'm constantly messing with it. So I have to uninstall it, install new ones and, and play mm -hmm. with different you know, builds. But I, I look at mine right now and I have uh, been saved from 61,694 trackers, 52,000 <laughs> ads blocked and 20,000 upgrades uh, for my HTTPS. Wow. So, you know, that's 20,000 20, connections to servers that would have been unsecure, but the browser preemptively made them secure on my behalf and it saved me at, you know, 1.6 hours. And so I, I don't know what I'm going to do with that time yet, but I'm going to spend it wisely. Um, <laughs> but this is, the, we get a lot of people that really love that because it puts it into meaningful uh, consumable metrics, something that you can yeah. understand. You can really feel the impact of 61,000 trackers blocked. Yep. That was 61,000 people or organizations, uh, entities trying to get, uh, access to me to learn things about me who were prevented from doing so. And that's that's a, a massive impact. It's it's just mind-blowing how much is going on think too, to, to really see that and to see those numbers and get that, that you get that physical sensation of, of what's happening when you go to web pages and when you're doing things on right. computers. Well, and when you think about the the minutes that you listed, I mean, that's, you know, if you're if you're on a mobile device and you're talking about mobile data, which for a a lot of people, you know, is, is they're only paying for so much a month before they hit an overage and then they have to pay extra. Like the number you really could put next to that also is how many dollars you probably saved in data costs. Well, those, that device. research has been done. You know, we, um, uh, one of the things that we realized earlier on is that, uh, when you go to the mobile space, 
about 50% of the data you load is ads and trackers. And so half of your data costs on your mobile plan go to people trying to track you, to, to learn from you. And so you're paying for this. And for the average uh, phone bill, for the average account, it's about $23 a month. And so that's what is astounding. You know, back in the 90s, when I would go on the internet, we'd pay per minute. And you know, I only got 15 minutes a day as a result. Thanks, mom. And so, <laughs> but uh, you know, we look at that today. This is still a real phenomenon. Many people are paying for their data. You know, they don't have an unlimited supply of it. And so, you look at the mobile space: twenty-three dollars a month on average. Up to fifty percent of the data your phone is downloading is is not really useful for you because it's just invisible. You know, ads and trackers. Yeah, I want to point out uh, to listeners that the basic attention token white paper. The first five or six pages, as I recall, is just a really fascinating dive into uh, the browser ecosystem and online advertising and to really see these numbers and where money's flowing, who makes money on advertising, who's spending money, what it's looked like over the last 10 years. Um, it gets from there very, very technical very quickly. But um, that intro, I, I sent that around to a lot of people to look at. It's, it's a great summary. We'll We'll link to that on the in the show notes. Yeah, there's sure. a video on there as well for people who want a three-minute kind of overview uh, on the very front of basicattentiontoken.org. Oh, great. Perfect. I feel like that's a pretty good place to to get out of here in terms of we just told you where to check out more, and then brave.com is the address to yep. get the browser, check all that stuff out. Hey, it's been, uh, thanks a lot. So many more questions <laughs> I want to dive into. <laughs> I know. We can talk about this for days. I'm, I'm really... it's. It's taking all of my willpower to cut us off at a reasonable time. Right well, now. it has been a blast. I mean, you know, Brave.com, as you mentioned, we've got builds for Windows, Mac OS, Linux, Android, iOS. Anywhere users are, we want to be there at their side to protect them. So uh, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to come on and chat with you guys. It has been an absolute blast. And if you want to pick it up in the future with some more questions, I'm more than happy to come back. Great. Killer. And uh, uh, people can get you on, on Twitter. Yeah, I think that's how we first connected. Yeah, I'm I'm on there as uh, I've got two accounts on there. One is just at Jonathan Sampson. The other one is at Brave Sampson. So if you want to chat about Brave specific stuff, hit me up at the Brave Sampson. And um, I'm always jumping on Skype calls with people as well. So if you've got uh, questions, I'm more than happy to take some time and accommodate your schedule to the best of my ability. Well, thank you yeah. for a wonderful conversation, Jonathan, and for bearing with us as we had continuing technical difficulties this morning. Uh, so many. <laughs> This is, this is by far the worst. <laughs> Hopefully we got it solved now, of, permanently. Yeah. But uh, this is Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I was Jonathan. <laughs> Take it easy, everybody. Yeah.